Welcome everyone to episode 56 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Jared Dillian. Jared is the author of the Daily Dirt Nap financial newsletter. He's the author of three books, including Street Freak, All the Money in the World, and most recently, Those Bastards. Jared, I uh, finished the book this morning. I absolutely loved it. I have uh, many questions for you. I hope I hope that I don't irritate you by uh, digging into this book. I do. I do have to correct you for a second, though. I do have to correct you. Sorry. The second book is called "All the Evil of This World." Oh, which is an an amazing book, amazing but very very filthy, very dirty. So, if you want to read a novel that takes place in the financial world that is disgustingly filthy, then go read that. So you mentioned in in your latest book that that's a very poor marketing strategy. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> if people yeah. if people are ashamed to recommend your book, it's uh... yeah. <laughs> Yeah, those bastards has already done much better. So, I have a I have a similar experience where I wrote a book that like one on one I get many many compliments on. It's called Personal Organization for De Degenerates. So it's like literally personal organization for people that are not inclined towards organization in any way, and it's I think like a very important book for a certain type of person. And it sold a shocking number of copies, especially in audio form. Um, but I feel like people don't recommend it because it's sort of, if they recommend it, it implies that they're a degenerate. But, but then again, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily change the title because somehow the title, especially in conjunction with the cover illustration, perfectly explains what it's about. Cool. The marketing, though, uh, for those, it can it can be quite difficult. If people are, for one reason or another, title or content hesitant to recommend your book, that is a problem. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, among the items that you drop in your essays, you say that you're writing three to four thousand words a day. That is a stunning quantity. Can you take us through your your method, your, your daily schedule? Yeah. Um, so, uh, every day I write the daily dirt nap. So that's 1500 words right there. Um, I have a weekly newsletter from Malden economics, which is about a thousand words. I have two monthly newsletters, which are about a thousand words each. Uh, I have a Substack newsletter that I send out every five days or so, which is about 1500 words. Uh, I I'm going to school. Um, so I have a bunch of assignments for school, uh, which, you know, I just finished one that's 2,100 words. Um, and gee, what else? Um, yeah, that's, that's, that about covers it. Yeah. So, um, it's a lot, it's a lot. Oh, and also, uh, podcasts, uh, writing up notes for my podcasts. Those are generally about a thousand words each. So, yeah. So you, you write at one point in the book that successful people are obsessive to a level that many cannot fathom, cannot understand. And I take it that you're quite obsessive in your methods uh, for one thing, I've never seen you make a mistake, which is a high compliment. Some people say a definition of genius is that the person makes no mistakes. Um, I have a good uh, copy editor eye, and uh, I didn't catch a single mistake in this book, and I never caught a mistake in your work. So that's high compliment. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I do make mistakes. I do make mistakes, um, sometimes big ones, but you just haven't seen them yet. So you have noted in your book that uh, you do take some tough trade-offs. You uh, work most of the time 
and forego exercise and certain things like you're you're working quite a bit so take us through the schedule each day well so at the moment i have an office for my newsletter business the daily dirt nap so i get up around 6 30 get dressed drive into the office i'm in the office around eight uh i work until about three or four um come home eat dinner and then i sit on the couch and work until about 10 at night so that's my typical day probably i probably end up working about 10 or 12 hours a day so i mean look like it's i think in the book i talk about this idea of comparative advantage you know like you should do more of the things that you're good at and less of the things that you're not good at right so I'm not an athletic person. I did play racquetball for years and I got to be pretty good at racquetball. And then the pandemic happened and I stopped going to the gym and I never went back. Um, so I'm super out of shape. I'm six feet tall. I'm 240 pounds. I could probably stand to lose about 40 pounds. So, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's just, it's not for me, it's not a priority. You know, I want to keep working on the things that I am good at to get better at. And one of the things that I've been doing actually in my free time is writing short stories, which I haven't released yet. So like my next goal is to write a short story collection. And I think I'll need about 15 short stories. I've written five so far and I'm really, really happy with them. So that's another thing that I'm working on, which I didn't even mention. Let's dive into that for a second. Many of our readers or listeners might not be interested, but I'm deeply interested in this. You recently have done an MFA at Savannah College of Art and Design. How almost, how, almost. Oh, almost completed an MFA. Um, yeah, I'll be done. I'll be done in June. Yeah. How did that come about? And are you uh, extremely happy with the experience? Somewhat happy, dying to get finished. Uh, I'm extremely happy and dying to get finished, but, um, no, when I, when I came out of college, uh, I really like when I was like 22, 23 years old, I wanted to get an MFA in creative writing and, you know, write fiction and be a professor. And that's the path I wanted to take. And my mom talked me out of it. She's like, you're going to be poor. You're not going to have any freaking money. So, um, so I did a complete 180 and went and got my MBA instead and went to Wall Street. Now, finance was also a passion of mine. You know, I was very interested in it, but my real passion was writing. And I put that off to the side for a number of years. And then three years ago, um, I took a camping trip with my wife and it was in the middle of summer and it was really, really hot. And I could not sleep in the tent. It was like boiling hot. So I, I got out of the tent and I sat by the fire all night and I started to think about where I was in life and the fact that I had this goal that I used to have that like was unfinished. And I said, I'm going to go back and get my NF MFA. So I was 46 at the time. Um, and when I got back to the house, uh, I applied to SCAD and uh, about a month or two later, I got accepted. And yeah, the past three years I've been going to school, almost finished. So I'll be done in 52 days. That's incredible. And you note that your favorite course so far has been writing for digital communication. What's that about? Well, I wouldn't say it was my favorite course. I'd say it was the one that probably I could have, I could have taught the course because, you know, I've been writing online for many, many years. You know, one of the projects in the class was to start a blog and there was a number of uh, platforms you could have chosen. I chose Substack. So I started writing this Substack. And, you know, after I wrote about eight or 10 blog entries, and they were all personal essays, I said, you know, maybe I can make a book out of this. So what a lot of people do with Substack is they try to monetize it by charging for subscriptions. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to give, I'm going to give away all the content for free. And then I'm going to sell a book at the end. So that's what I did. And the book is Those Bastards, 69 Essays on Life, Creativity, and Meaning. 
And I actually didn't, the book doesn't have all the essays that were online. I saved 10 that are new, but um, yeah, that's the book. I remember in our last podcast, we were chatting a bit about Substack and you said that the engagement on Substack wasn't initially what you had expected, but then I've gathered from your subsequent tweets that the audience grew very nicely. Uh, how are you rating Substack as a platform right now? Uh, Substack is great. Um, I just, you know, I, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to charge for it, you know? So basically Substack makes money when people set up paid subscriptions and then Substack takes a 10% cut. So, but Substack doesn't do anything about this free rider problem. You know, free riders like me, like I'm never going to charge for anything on Substack. And I basically just get to use the platform for free. So, you know, for the time being, I can do that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, great platform. And you found that it's very active. Are you thinking about doing some Substack notes instead of Twitter or in addition to Twitter? No, no, I won't do that. I'm just, I'll just do the long form essays. Yeah. I'm not going to do Substack notes. Yeah. Now you mentioned that you began reading before the age of two and you now have an intense interest in literary fiction. You mentioned that you're currently writing for literary journals where you say the audience is quite small, maybe 8,000 people or so per journal. Uh, why do you want to diversify into that area, the super highbrow literary fiction that has very small audiences? Uh that is a good question, my friend, <laughs> because it is very, very hard. It is very, very hard. Um, no, I mean, I I have always wanted to to be in that world. Um, like it's kind of, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up, but I'll 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 try to explain this. So, you know, I am a popular writer. Right. So this, so those bastards sold 2,500 copies in the first week, which is absolutely amazing. You know, lo lots of people like to read my stuff, but my, my writing tends, tends not to be super highbrow. And <clears throat> I want to, I want to basically raise my writing ability to the point where I can get published in some of these literary journals. So I actually did get published in one. I published a short story in uh, a literary magazine called sensitive skin i got i got published like six weeks ago and it was one of the happiest days of my life you know and it's a very cool short story it's called glowing so that was really the first step and so is it sexual um, in nature i'm just i'm, I'm not familiar with that no journal. not not it's not really it's it's about a 23 year old girl living in utah who's getting her PhD in economics at the university of Utah. And she's at home on summer break and she starts peeping in people's windows. She becomes a peeping Tom basically. Uh, and it talks about some of the things that she sees and the risks that she's taking. It's really about our self-conscious, our, our subconscious desire for self-sabotage. That's really what the story is about. Um, and it's, it's a very, very cool story, but not even the best one that I've written. So and you mentioned along the way one writer who's among your favorite, Barry Hanna, who I have never heard of in my entire life. Is uh, could you acquaint us with his work very quickly? Barry Hanna is in in the literary world. He's every great writer's favorite writer. Like if you ask all the top writers who their favorite writer is, a lot of them are going to say Barry Hanna. Barry Hanna never sold more than 7,000 copies of any book on their first printing, never sold more than 7,000 copies of any book. And yet he's considered to be one of the best writers. So when you ask me, like, why do I want to do this? Like, why do I want to get into this literary world? Like it's, you know, I want to be appreciated by people whose opinion I care about deeply. You know what I mean? Like people who really understand literature so, you know, with Barry Hanna, I mean, he lived in Oxford, Mississippi. He passed away about 10 years ago. His his writing is 
like just fantastic and not lucid and he really writes for men um not a lot of women like his writing he really writes for men it's he's just fantastic so if you want to read any read any barry hannah read the short story collection airships fantastic stuff well i i am a fan of literary fiction and i'm embarrassed to say i'd never heard of him before i i read his name in your book uh do you have a few favorite writers in the area of literary fiction uh barry hannah john updike um those are those i would say are the top two maybe alice monroe um i would i would say those are the top three and of course alice monroe i mean those are the best of the best alice monroe won the nobel prize updike was just a giant you know so they're the best yeah we need a uh a new uh, rabbit series for the modern era um best finance writers which is a totally different genre, but do you have, can you uh, name a few of your favorite writers in finance? Uh, actually, I I can't uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, I'm very like, I'm very picky about finance writing. I mean, but also like, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to leave anybody off the list and then have people get mad at me and stuff like that. So I really don't want to like talk about best finance writers. So, <laughs> Yeah. You have some gems of advice in those bastards. And one of them is that the best way to career success is to never say anything bad about anyone. <laughs> right? Yeah. So with your SCAD experience, um, I have had the pleasure of walking around that campus and it looks like quite a fun place to be. You mentioned that you've done most of the degree remote. Have you had the experience of attending uh, live classes? No, I've never attended live classes, but I've had to go down there a couple of times. Uh, one for my, basically my oral exams, my 45 hour review. So I had to go down there for the oral exams. And I had to go down there for my thesis defense. So I've only been down there twice while I've been doing the degree. Um, so. Um, and I take it that the, the fellow students are quite impressive and you feel like you're learning from them, even though everything is remote. Yeah, actually, you know, I used to be very dismissive of online education. Uh, you know, I used to think it was kind of fake and, you know, like, how is anybody learning from this and stuff? And I think it kind of varies by discipline. But with writing, it's it's really the it's perfectly well suited to learning it online. Like there's I don't want to say there's no benefit from being in a live class, but basically, you know, you're, you're writing stuff and you're posting it for feedback and you're revising like it's like, it's perfect for online education. So I don't really feel like I've missed out on anything by getting the degree online. That makes sense. Um, so I want to go to some individual scenes from your book and hopefully you can elaborate them elaborate on them. You have one piece where you mentioned that one doesn't get ahead by being a pessimist. And I notice on Twitter that you sometimes uh, dunk on people that are perma bears because it is a very common thing in the finance Twitter world, uh, perhaps because perma bears in our generation have all gone, gone bust and Twitter is the only thing left. I don't know. But um, have do you find that there is sort of a shortage of optimists, if you will, in the in the econ Twitter space? Well, I think there are optimists, but I don't really like the optimists either, because I think the, the see the optimists tend to be index fund proponents, buy and hold index funds, dollar cost average, everything's going to work out in the long run. And the I, I, it's really like a logic issue I have with that. You know, basically the stock market returned nine, 10 percent a year for the last 100 years. Right. So people extrapolate and they say it's going to return nine or 10 percent for the for the next 100 years. But the conditions that led to the previous performance may not be present for the future performance. 
like there's no rule that says that stocks have to return 9% forever, right? So what are those conditions? Well, one is, you know, property rights, the rule of law, peacetime, favorable politics, like all of those, like that's, those are the conditions that, that led to the returns of the last 100 years. And I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm an optimist, but I'm saying, look, like there, there might come a time where, and this happened, you know, if you bought stocks in 1929, you didn't break even until 1946, 17 years. Right. And my problem with this is that nobody can withstand the drawdown of 89%, which is what the stock market did back then. Nobody can buy and hold in dollar cost average for 17 years. So it really becomes a behavioral issue, right? Because people can't withstand drawdowns of that magnitude. So that's my issue with the optimist. So I think everybody is done, right? <laughs> so like I have problems with both, both philosophies. Well, I think your argument makes complete sense that you can't extrapolate from the ex post most successful country in the ex post most successful century and say that those returns will come forever. That that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, in our last podcast, you had a wonderful thing to say about the the Federal Reserve, which I think I'll never forget. You say that it's an institution that's driven by embarrassment, by fear of embarrassment. Uh, how has that played out over time? Like, where do you see the trajectory of the Fed now? Well, if you think about where the Fed was in 2020, 2021, when we first started to see inflationary pressures, they said inflation was transitory. And that is driven by the path of, the path of least embarrassment because the Fed did, it, they looked at this and they said, okay, we have we have two possibilities. If we raise rates, we could be right, and we could be fighting this inflation, or we could be raising rates prematurely and cause a recession for no reason, and which would be more embarrassing for the Fed? What would be more, more embarrassing for the Fed would be to raise rates prematurely and cause a recession when they didn't have to. So it's all driven by politics. It's all driven by optics. And where the Fed is right now... Um, is like now that you know now that the fed is in inflation fighting mode if you think about the path of least embarrassment what is what is better for the fed for the fed to continue hiking rates and they cause a recession and inflation comes down or they pause hiking rates and inflation picks up again which of those scenarios do you think they'll be most embarrassed the second scenario obviously so they're going to they're going to have a bias for being hawkish and they continue to raise rates long after they should have which has already happened. So, yeah. It, I I have to say it fits quite well. Uh you ha you had another tweet that was interesting the other day uh which is something that I've long noticed which is that the Fed has very inflated payrolls. Uh you noted that I think it's something quite incredible. It's like 23,000 employees at an average salary of 350,000 or something like this. Like their their payroll is around uh over 4 billion, I think. It's it's quite a I don't think that was my tweet. I don't think that was my tweet. Oh, I think that was okay. somebody else. I'm sorry. But it sounds like it sounds like something I would say. <laughs> okay, okay. Um on the personal level, you say that You've become quite successful in recent years, presumably from Daily Dirt Nap mostly. At one point, you say that you're probably in the top 100 writers in the world in terms of gross pay. Uh, but as a matter of personal habit, you like to stay hard, as it were, and, and you don't treat yourself to so many luxuries. Uh, you say that in New York, just to keep yourself in line, you often stay at places that are around 200 or 300 a night, even including the pod hotel. So take us through this theory of, of personal behavior. Yeah, I'm. it's funny because uh, I, I literally just booked a trip up to New York for my book signing and I'm staying in the pod. And the pod, if, if you don't know, is a hotel in New York. It's, well, there's a bunch of pods, but the one I stay in is pod 39. And 
it's the Japanese style teeny tiny rooms with a twin bed. And there it's a it's a clean hotel, it's a nice hotel, it's comfortable, but you're in this tiny room. And you know, I like I've done that, like I've stayed in New York for like 800 bucks a night. Like I, I just can't do that. I, I, I can't do that. Like it's, so I try to, I try to keep my expenses down. I don't, I don't live really at my standard of living. I believe below my standard of living. Yeah. That's a good way to do it behaviorally. I think Um, now the top hundred, that is a high bar. Like there writing is a tough it's a, it's a tough area, but the top hundred still gets you into a high level of earnings is, would you say that that's, it's mostly coming from the newsletter and the accumulated subscriber base that is there with the newsletter? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 And do you find that there's not much turnover there? Uh, you know, my newsletter has a very high renewal rate. Um, I generally, I have a renewal rate of around 80 or 85%, which is the highest that I've ever heard of. Yeah. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. So once I get a subscriber, I tend to keep them for a very long time. Um, but you know, basically I make 90% of my money off the newsletter and, you know, I still enjoy the daily dirt nap and I put a lot of time into it. Um, but it basically pays for me to do the writing that I really want to do, you know? So. Yeah. And your approach is sentiment driven where you say that you're sort of a born contrarian and you're very attuned to when people are getting carried away in one direction or another, and you try to go the opposite way. Is that a fair generalization? That's basically it. Yeah. And your method is Twitter sphere kind of listening to public conversation. Is that how you're getting the lay of the land? Well, it's a lot of it is Twitter. That's probably 80% of it. But um, basically if you want to be a sentiment trader or a sentiment investor, you have to have your eyes open and be paying attention to TV radio, movies, pop culture, music. You also have to, in in any conversation you have with anybody anywhere, you have to listen for sentiment cues. If you're talking to a home builder or real estate appraiser, or even your hairstylist, like that you talk to just basically average people. And, you know, for example, this is a very recent one. I, I do a radio show, uh, Thursday mornings locally. I go on the local morning show. I'm like the finance guy that goes on the morning show. And I get there and the hosts are just taught they're 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 talking about the dollar, like the dollar losing its reserve currency status. And these are these are not finance people, right? But that tells you how far this theme went. It got down into Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. The local radio hosts are talking about the dollar losing its reserve currency status. That makes me bullish on the dollar, right? Right. Like for sure. So. I like it. Um, I want to talk about one incident that happened when you were a trader at Lehman Brothers. You separately in the book note Nassim Taleb's observation that finance is depraved and and that and you make the observation that if you sort of put a trading floor at 2x speed <laughs> and put it to the soundtrack of mine, 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 it would fit pretty well that it, there could be a lot of grief <laughs> in, in the trading floor. Um, one thing that happened to you when you were a trader, you said that you were making markets, I gather, in ETFs and someone called you with a very large transaction for 250,000 shares of XLE. And a moment later, Exxon did a surprise secondary and XLE tanked, which presumably this person knew. Um, what What would you say is the culture on Wall Street behind a transaction like that, where, I don't know, it would be equivalent in fantasy sports to 
sort of having inside information about some injury and doing a trade in your season long league, knowing something that no one else in the league knows. Uh, what, what are the ethics there on wall street? Well, so that trade is what you would call a pickoff. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but uh, yes. a pickoff is, is where you basically catch somebody sleeping and you pick their pocket uh, on a trade. And the thing, the thing with wall street is that it's a relationship business, right? So, and I, I talked a little bit about this in the book, like there are occasions where people do non-economic things for each other because they're trying to maintain a relationship so we had a bunch of clients that that traded with us regularly and we took care of them and they took care of us and there it was a two-way relationship this particular client never traded with us and they came in on this one trade so basically like we didn't have a relationship with them to the, to to begin with so they weren't in danger of blowing up a relationship in fact they chose us specifically because they didn't have a relationship with us so, and so they did, they did burn, burn you. And I'm presumably you talk bad about them to everyone you could, but it didn't matter so much because they didn't have a relationship with you or anyone. Yeah. Else. And when you say that they caught you sleeping, it's literally by a matter of seconds, probably not, not by anything longer than yeah, that. Yeah. Just a matter of seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, just to be clear, I don't, I don't think they had inside information on the secondary, I just think they got the news quicker than we did and they reacted faster. So. Right. Um, in the genre of novels about finance. And I look forward to reading all of the evil in this world. I haven't read it. Um, in that genre, what do you think are the best examples? I read the book trust recently. I thought it was quite good. Uh, Tom Wolf has a couple. What what do you think are the best in the genre of fiction that's around finance? I don't really think there's much, honestly. Like tell like tell me like tell me what there is. Like I don't I don't think there's a lot of like finance novels. Like there's a guy named Jay Newman who's actually a subscriber to the Daily Dirt Nap. He wrote one called Under Money, but it's really like a financial thriller right? It's really, it's, it's a thriller. It's not, it's not like literary fiction. You know what I mean? So. Right. I would, I would say that trust is literary fiction. Uh, and that was quite good. Um, certainly a close cousin to literary fiction. It, it, and <clears throat> It managed to sell a large number of copies. Something like Bonfire of the Vanities, I would not say is literary, but it's maybe the best example. I don't know. Uh, as you say, there's not so much in that genre. Uh, Jay McCurney has done a couple of pieces that are based around the finance world. Um, <clears throat> but you don't have any favorites, really. No, I'm just I'm I'm not aware of much out there in that genre. Like and a, and a lot of the, I mean even a book like American Psycho, like which takes place in the banking world, it's not really about banking. You know what I mean? Like so it's really hard to find a novel that is really about finance take pl takes place in the financial world but you know. Yeah, so. it it has the same problem as like fiction around poker, for instance, because there was the movie Rounders. You probably saw it. It was a fantastic movie. Sure. Sort of played a part in starting the poker boom. And then people were hungry for other poker content, right? Other poker fiction. And it was slow in coming. I think the reason is that poker is an empty activity. It's really about the money. So you can't really well, you see that the, th the, the thing with poker is that it, it takes place in your head, which is the same thing with finance too. Like if you notice, there's a million cop TV shows, there's a million lawyer TV shows, there's a million doctor TV shows. 
you can see an operating room, you can see a courtroom, but really like on a trading floor, all the drama is going on inside your head. It's a very difficult thing to depict on a, like on a, like in a TV show or something like that. And I think it also applies to the literary world. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Frenzen's The Corrections has a substantial sort of financial market interaction and that's, that's quite a good book. Um, but yeah, there's, you have to have it as a sideshow. You can't really have it as the central story unless you're doing a thriller or something along those lines. Um, you have some contrary takes in the book. One of the, one of the takes is that people don't guard their time very well. And you say that if a big part of your productivity has been knowing what you're good at and safeguarding your schedule so that you're really focused on those things. Um, you mentioned that kids activities can be a killer for many people's productivity. Was that a conscious decision that you made career-wise, you and your, your wife as an academic? to not have kids or yeah yeah that was a conscious decision yeah yeah and you sort of say that it's the biggest use of time for many people and and that it's a trade-off maybe that people don't know that they're making is that fair yep yep that's a good way of putting it yep what what other trade-offs do you see people making uh, with their time that you think uh, are more complicated than, than they think? I remember my ex-father-in-law one time, he said, he said, never play golf. Golf is a career killer. And I thought that was interesting because I had never even framed it that way. Uh, and then I have another friend who's a poker guy, very successful. He's been successful in many different areas. And he says he never goes out for dinner, which again is like kind of a reframing for me that doesn't make any sense because it's one of my favorite things in the world to do. But he says people don't realize how much time they're wasting in every single way. They're wasting time, they're wasting money, they're wasting time preparing for the dinner, going to the three hour dinner, coming home and being tired, being hung over the next day. Um, so he just sees it in a way that I had never kind of even conceived. But where else do you see people making time trade-offs in ways that maybe they don't they don't understand the cost? Well, really, it comes down to entertainment. You know, two things really. So streaming services, so Netflix, Netflix and Amazon Prime, and all the streaming services, and also social media which includes Twitter, but also Facebook and Instagram and everything else. These are all big time sucks. You know what I mean? Like I don't work in an office with people, but when I did, um, it was all the conversations were about some show that was on TV, you know, that people had gotten sucked into. And did you see this episode? And did you see this episode? And it was kind of the social currency that people were talking about, but um, that's, you know, if you get home at six and eat dinner and then spend the next four hours watching shows like that's that's a huge waste of time. I only did that once in my life. It was around 2003, 2004. Um, I got sucked into two shows, House, which was fantastic. I still love that show and Lost. Right. And like in that period of my life. Like I was, I was really depressed and I kind of needed some mindless entertainment, but it was also the most unproductive period of my life. Like I was just getting home and watching TV and four or five hours just disappears, you know? So, you know, I, I, the, the one thing I do nowadays is that I watch baseball, uh, but I don't really watch it actively. Like I have the MLB network. I turn on the Yankees every day. And I have the game on while I'm working on my computer, um, but I don't really watch it actively, so to speak. So football is another one. Watching football on, you know, there's 
you know, I have a good friend here in Myrtle Beach, like Saturday and Sunday during football season, college football and pro football. He's sitting on the couch watching football the entire weekend, you know. That's that's a time suck. Your your MLB habit sounds more like the way Obama would work, where after dinner he would retire to his office and turn on the NBA and and read presumably confidential reports about what was going on in the world. Yeah. You also note that working out is a complicated trade-off that most people don't consider. It takes a lot of time and you say that for the most part, you're not doing it. But I don't know whether that's explicitly based on the trade-off, but you say that most people kind of don't consider any real cost to go along with the benefit of working out. Yeah, I mean, I think the essay you're talking about is you're not successful. Right. And I started off I started off that essay by talking about my brother who is a workout fanatic, like spends hours a day in the gym. Um, and I told the story about how he went on like a corporate outing and he was going rafting and he puts on his life jacket and his, he's got these arms with these muscles and his muscles are rippling. And he's, you know, he was a triathlete. He was a bodybuilder. And this guy looks at him and says, you're not successful. Cause he could tell just by looking at him that he wasn't working you know, he had 16 waking hours and instead of spending it working, he was spending it in the gym and he wasn't successful, you know? So if we all have 24, not even 24 hours a day, cause we have to sleep, got to sleep eight hours. So we have 16 hours a day that we have to decide what to do with. And the most important decision we make every day is what to do with those 16 hours, how you allocate your time, you know? So Another contrary take you have in the book is that you think the worst way, not the worst way to die, but you think a bad way to die would be to die peacefully in your sleep and that you would like instead to have a long and painful death where you're able to set your affairs in order, you're able to grow from, from suffering. Um, so most people frame cancer, for instance, is like the worst or among the worst deaths, but you say not, not so much. No, it's absolutely, no, I absolutely, I want to get cancer. I want to die of cancer and I want it to be slow and I want it to be painful, you know, for, 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 for both the reasons you mentioned one, just because, you know, if I die in a car accident, like it's a mess. My wife has to untangle all my affairs, all my financial affairs. Like it's, it, it's, it's a disaster, right? Like if, if I, if I die slowly, I can get my affairs in order over time. But one of the things I say in the book is that we have to grow spiritually all the way to the end and you grow spiritually through suffering, right? So a lot of people say they want a quick death because they want to escape that suffering. But I actually welcome it. Like that is actually how I want to die. I've never seen it framed that way, but it's it's quite uh, interesting, thought provoking in the way many of these pieces are, I have to say. You mentioned among your top five favorite memories in life. One of them is DJing. Uh, early in your in your DJing endeavor, uh, it's clear from your writing that this is one of the most enjoyable things that you do. What is your taste in music? You classify a certain lowbrow versus highbrow music distinction. Uh, you seem to be highbrow. EDM. I don't know if I'm doing it any justice, but maybe maybe you could explain where are your musical tastes? What are some artists that you admire quite a bit? Well, it is electronic music, and there's a whole bunch of different genres in electronic music. Most people, when they think of electronic music, it's you know EDM. EDM is a genre, and, and it's a, it's a type of stuff that you would hear in like Hakkasan in Las Vegas, like in a Las Vegas club, like super high energy. It's not even really house music. It's EDM. And I like the underground stuff. I like underground house and techno that is a bit more artistic. And uh, I'm, I'm a super annoying purist about it. 
Um, I, I mean, I could mention some producers to you, but it wouldn't mean anything to you. It's definitely not anybody you've heard of before. But um, I like the really deep underground stuff. And, you know, the funny thing about that stuff is, you know, I play it live when I DJ and people love it. They go bananas over it and they come up to me afterwards and they're like, what are you playing? I've never heard this before. It's amazing, which is really like the best compliment you can give a DJ. You know, because really what a DJ, you know, and aside from just mixing the tracks, like a DJ is imparting taste, like he is selecting music to play to other people. And, um, you know, I'm really I'm a curator, like I, I curate this really great progressive house and people like it. People that can't attend one of your shows, is there a spot on uh soundcloud or spotify where they can find mixes or no yeah i'm on soundcloud just look uh, look on soundcloud for dj stochastic actually have a pretty big soundcloud following i love it you mentioned uh, nine inch nails is someone that fits your taste i'm uh do you like the cure as well i like the cure um cure is not my favorite from that era i mean i was more of a depeche mode person so yeah the cure is going on tour soon so yeah there's a big controversy about the ticket prices i saw why would there be a controversy because they underpriced their tickets yeah and Ticketmaster didn't want to let them so oh yeah that sounds on brand for Ticketmaster. yeah but uh, their first concert is in New Orleans, so I'm kind of hoping Nine Inch Nails would join them a bit on stage in New Orleans. Um, wanted to ask you a couple questions about the Daily Dirt Nap. The, the group that listens to this podcast might include potential subscribers. Um, do you ever send out physical copies? No. It's all electronic. I thought about I thought about doing that in the beginning, but it's just too much overhead. So, yeah, it's all electronic. I would imagine it's too much overhead, but some of the guys that have been doing it for a long time, like Jim Grant and uh, uh, what's his name, Solakala, who does uh, what I learned this week, they they both have paper versions that go out to their older subscribers, which is quite quite interesting but it seems sort of unnecessary well so in those two examples so Kirill, uh with 13d research like he charges a lot of money he charges like twelve thousand a year so he can he can send out paper copies grant charges i want to say a thousand or twelve hundred bucks a year and i know he has about ten thousand subscribers so he's doing about 10 million a year but my guess is that overhead really eats into his profits like I would be shocked if he's making more than a million or maybe two a year um, with, with all that overhead. Cause he's got analysts and printing and it's, you know, it's a lot. He does the conferences, which are really great. Actually, I've been to a few of them. Have you ever thought about doing a meetup of some kind? I know I have a conference. I actually have a conference here in Pauly's Island in two weeks is my oh, annual sick. conference. Oh, sick. Where Where is Pauly's Island? I'm not familiar. Is that a, a geography or a hotel? A little, little, bit, little bit south of Myrtle Beach. Okay, sweet. And that's a like a two-dayer? Yeah. Nice. Who are the journalists that you, the financial writers that you find yourself interacting with most frequently you respect their opinion and are picking their brain often um that's that's a good question i don't know i don't know that i'm picking journalist brains that often uh i mean i'm i'm friends with jennifer ablan at pensions and investments like i'm good friends with her i have a couple other journalists that i'm friends with um but i i'm not I'm not really, I don't really have like a professional dialogue with them. You mentioned that you're writing a book on, I guess, I guess, I guess you would count Eric Balchunas, 
who's the ETF analyst at Bloomberg. Um, he's a guy that I talk to quite a bit. Yeah, um, I'm sure there's some others. Yeah. You mentioned that you're writing a book on personal finance that centers around one core idea. Of course, you don't leak that idea. I gather that this book is coming out relatively soon. Can you give us anything on this book? Um, it's, I can't really, it's coming out in January and I can't, I can give you the title, uh, because the title it, it's already up on Amazon. So it's called no worries, how to live a stress-free financial life. That's a good title. And it's aimed at a very mainstream audience. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. I love it. All right, Jared. Well, thanks so much. This was great. This is my favorite type of podcast to read a book that I really enjoy and then chat with the author about it. So I'm deeply appreciative. And once again, the book is Those Bastards, 69 Essays on Life, Creativity, and Meaning. You can pick it up on Amazon. And I'm go going to have a Twitter thread. It might be late by the time you hear this, but I'm going to have a Twitter thread where I'm giving away 20 digital copies. So look out for that. How do you give away digital copies? I've never heard of that before. You need the email address, which some people are loath mm -hmm. to provide. But uh, if someone follows you and then sends you their email address, you can just mail them a copy. Interesting. I didn't know that. I, I've done it many times before. It's possible that the technology has changed. Um. Oh, you know what? It hasn't changed because it used to be that you could order it and they would send you multiple PDFs that you could then send out. And now you have to do it directly from Amazon one by one, buy it as a gift and plug in their email. Mm. So like, well, thanks for doing that. Yeah, of course. I'll literally um, just have the list of 20 emails and then one by one, I'll like buy it and send it to the person. But I'll send, yeah, I'll for doing send that. them a digital copy, not, I mean, an email only copy. I don't have to have their address and all that stuff. So. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this. This was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you.